Hey, turn with me to Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13, which actually, it's kind of, yeah, it's just the way I did it. I don't know why, but it, it's kind of weird. Like we're jumping, we're finishing up a section, and then we're jumping into a new section. And the new section that we're going to be jumping into is really a list of what we, we would call dead-end pursuits. Okay, Solomon is going to talk about these dead-end pursuits. We'll kind of get into that as we get further along. But remember last week, we looked at what we call the apparent pointless patterns of nature. You know, you remember those, right? The sun comes up, it goes down, it comes up again. The wind blows this way, it returns to where it starts, and then it blows that way again. The river runs into the sea, the sea water evaporates in the air, it rains and fills the river, and then it runs back in the sea. And we see this, a pointless Uh, just kind of apparent pointless patterns in creation. The reason Solomon had us look at that was not to marvel at God's creation, although the order of God's creation is is awesome. That's a very incredible thing to marvel at when you you know, like, you're not wondering if the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Like, you know it is. And you can count on that. There's some stability in that. But that's not why he had us look at these things. He, He had us look at these things to frustrate us. Remember, we said in the beginning part of Ecclesiastes, he's trying to disillusion all of us with anything that this life can offer independently of God. And so he's showing us this to frustrate this, frustrate us because he's contrasting to our lives. In fact, what did he say in verse two? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse three, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sum? And the, and the implied answer is he's got no value. He's got no leftovers. In fact, why do we even live? That's kind of the idea that he's planting in our thinking to show us that life without fellowship with God is worthless, meaningless, doesn't make sense. And so that's one of the things that he's going he's to continue to, to emphasize over and over again. You can, you can grasp natural phenomenon, but you can't grasp what your life's all about. Remember, he uses vanity. Vanity doesn't necessarily mean meaningless. It means mist or fog. And like we've said many times, when you got fog outside, you just grab it and put it in a box and save it for later, right? So you can look at it later. I mean, it doesn't work that way. You go to grab fog and what happens? I mean, if you tried it all day, that's what you would look like all day. Just as this arm going out, you're never going to get your hands. And so sometimes life feels that way. There's a tension there that he's establishing. And so what he's trying to do is get us disillusioned for life. And you know, a great theme verse for the book of Ecclesiastes isn't even found in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's found in Colossians chapter three. And let's just turn there really quick. I want you to see this because... I would love for this verse to be resonating in our thinking the entire time we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's simply this, Colossians 3.1 says this, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Notice verse 2, here it is. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? For you died... Notice he doesn't say Christ died for you. He's talking about a different aspect of the cross. This is where we were severed from our sin nature. It's when we died with Christ for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And you know, each one of us in this room needs that reminder constantly. It is so easy and simple to set our mind on things on the earth because it's, it's right in front of us. That's where we live. When things go wrong, it's easy to be occupied with the things that make us anxious or worried or stressed or frustrated. It's easy to be conformed to the image of this world and think that now our 401k is all that matters in life or our promotion to the next job or if we finally got that new boat or that new fishing rod or that new house or that vacation home up here. And we constantly have our minds set on things on the earth. And the exhortation in Colossians is the same, I believe, we see in in Ecclesiastes. When you do that, and here's the great thing about God. This is what I love about God. He's a gentleman. He's going to give you the choice. You have the choice to decide if you'll set your mind on things on the earth or set your mind on things above. But here's the deal. He also is very specific about the consequences. There's going to be consequences when you make a decision regardless. And here's the deal. If we set our mind on earthly things, what Solomon's going to play out for us is you will be miserable. You will be unhappy. You won't find true purpose in life. You might not be able to explain it, but if you can remember a time where you wake up and you're irritated, agitated, frustrated with life in general, with people in general, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. You just have a bad attitude and you can't explain why. That's the outcome of that type of life. That's why. That's why. That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches, on the other hand, that when you're in fellowship with the Lord, You have true pleasure. You have purpose. You have meaning. You have joy. The fruit of the Spirit is in effect because you're in fellowship with the Lord and the Spirit of God is producing that in your life. And you're so happy, you're like, you know, pinch me. It can't be this good, right? Just pinch me, slap me. I can't be, I can't be, I can't enjoy life this much. And yes, you can. That's how God has designed it, but it's in fellowship with him. And that's why when Paul is trapped in in a Philippian jail, most of, most of us would agree that was bad circumstances. And typically when we live our life, we have to have good circumstances to be happy, right? It's, it's cool to sing about the Lord in church on Sunday morning when I'm showered and cleaned and shaved and I had a good night's sleep and my kids are actually behaving. And it's like, oh, praise the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm in the moment, you know, this is great. But how do you do that when you're in a prison cell after you've gotten your back torn up by whips. See, that's what you possess as a believer in Jesus Christ. You have access to the same resources that caused Paul and Silas. You know what, you know what, guys? Let's sing the first, second, third, and fourth stanzas of amazing grace, you know? And they're just belting it out in there, in this prison, with their backs torn up from getting beaten for something they didn't even do wrong. And see, that's the kind of life that God wants to produce in each one of us. And and so as we move into Ecclesiastes, Solomon is now going to move from the particulars to the general. He gave us some very specific things, earth, sun, wind, water. And then we jump into verse 8. And this is what he says. He gets into more general things. And he says this, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And it's an interesting phrase that he uses here because it says all things. And the word things actually refers to a verbal statement. And so go back and put that. 
all verbal statements about, I think, what he's trying to explain are full of labor. And what does full of labor mean? Well, it just means worn out, physically tired out, like you, like you are when you have a full day of labor. That's what he's talking about. So he's saying even these mental or, or I'm not mental, verbal statements about how this all fits together is wearisome. This, is, this wears me out is kind of the idea. And so these four examples, earth, wind, sun, water that we looked at before are meant to show this restless activity, this, this labor reaching no visible conclusion and end and then always beginning anew, up, which is in contrast to our lives, which, which do what? You live it and it ends. And that's kind of his point. This, this contrast is what he's pointing out. In fact, all things that are in labor give this impression uh, of fatigue, but, but these things in nature look like they're accomplishing something because they're, they're starting over and they just keep going and going, kind of like the Energizer bunny in, in our image. That's, that's what he's saying. So they look like they're, they're accomplishing something. So this, this unrest or this fatigue that he describes as continual labor reflects itself in man when he, when he contemplates what's being done around him. And then he figures out that if I see more or hear more, I still won't understand it. I still won't be able to explain this thing called life and how it fits together. And you can imagine the type of hopelessness that might set in. Right there, there's a sense of hope that if I may not know something today, but if I feel like I can learn it, I have a little bit of hope that it's going to get better. But what he realizes here at the end of his life, it doesn't matter how much more he sees, how much more he hears, how much more he reads, how much more he explores, he still doesn't have it. He doesn't have it when he's just considering life on a horizontal plane. In fact, he's describing how man gets wearied just trying to explain it. You ever been in a philosophy class in college? Oh my goodness. Talk about wearisome. You know, it's like uh, years ago when President Clinton said it, it depends on how you define the word, you know, is. It, 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 what was it, is? I mean, that's philosophy. It's like you write papers on that kind of stuff. And it's like, what? This doesn't even make sense. And, and so this is kind of uh, a similar explanation here. Now, Additionally, to understand or explain why, the, why these uh, earthly elements seem to go on forever and recycle, um, and they continue to benefit from their labor, and man does not, this is what baffles Solomon. He sees all these things in nature. And by the way, he just names four. He could have named a ton more. He could have, he could have named a ton more things in nature that have this same cyclical, repeating cycle. And yet as he looks at man, what he's going to describe is man does all this work, for what? And then what? And thus, who cares? Why, why should we? And you just start to see how he disillusions us so that we're not finding our hope in, in things, in horizontal type thinking on this earth. And we begin to think actually biblically from a divine viewpoint about how we spend our time, how we invest our resources. And that's what he's trying to and what he'd like to accomplish He goes on in verses 9 through 11 to try to further explain the statement. But before he does, he restates everything he just said. But he just does it in a different phrase. He says that man cannot express it. If you look back at verse 8, man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And you know, what he's saying is man cannot verbally express and understand these contrasts 
in our lives. And even if they could, it wouldn't be adequate. Just like a philosophy class. They, they ask lots of questions, but they have no answers, right? And so this is, this is basically human philosophy that he's working through here. And yet at, at some point in the book, he's going to infuse a biblical answer. And that is, all of these things can have meaning with God. All of these things without God have no meaning. And that's really the summary of what he's trying to communicate here. Now, this word express, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's in what we call the PL stem in the Hebrew. And um, it indicates this word bringing about of a state, but the PL stem has a force to it. It's forcefully bringing about a state. And so he, what he's saying is, uh, he's, he's giving this word force that man cannot put into words the understanding that they're looking for. Force, like he's really just making a strong, emphatic statement that man can't do it. He's been trying. In fact, he's going to try for 12 chapters <laughs> to put it into words. And you can see he bounces back and forth. Uh, it's a little bit of a struggle. We'll kind of see that uh, play out. You know, the other thing, more information is not going to help. That's what he's saying here when he says that the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. In fact, this word satisfied is is an imperfect aspect in the Hebrew. It indicates actions of ongoing results. In other words, you'll never be satisfied. It will never be satisfied. That's an ongoing result. The more I see, and that's how we think about things. Well, I'll eventually figure it out if I can just learn more, see more, do more. I'll get this all figured out. And he's saying, no, it's never going to happen. You can't see enough horizontally to figure this thing out. You need something else. And obviously, we know what that answer is, and we're kind of giving the spoiler alert every week, you know, that it's God. That's what you need to make sense of this whole thing called life. You know, it's difficult to verbalize, Solomon says, but it's also difficult to actually show somebody what we're talking about. Uh, the word filled, when we talk about the, the ear being filled, it's, it's in what we call the nifal stem in the Hebrew, and it just indicates a reflexive action. In other words, the ear can't fill itself up with enough knowledge to understand these things. The idea is you can't even cram enough into your head to get this to get this all figured out and so a way to kind of just summarize that no learning you gain from personally seeing something or personally hearing something will give you a full understanding uh, of the nature of these contrasts that he paints for us in chapter one now one of the things we see as we jump to verses nine through ten is there are some uh, constants in our world and so let's read verses nine uh, through ten says this, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see this is new, it has already been in ancient times before us. And so he says that which has been is what will be. And so there are constants in this world that we've looked at that we depend on. And so these, these are dependable, they're cyclical. We, we see that they're always going to be a part of this creation. And this is in contrast to our lives because our lives are transitory. They, they last 80 years on average and, and they're gone. A new generation comes. Remember back, in, uh, back up in verse um, 4. As a generation passes away, a new generation comes. So there's not this, 
cyclical nature of you actually repeating yourself, but, but creation, there's some constants in this creation. But you know, here's the thing. Does that speak of divine order or does it speak of futility? And, and, and a lot of that has to do with your perspective. You know, for, from man's perspective, this just looks futile. This is just dumb. This just doesn't make sense. Like this is just worthless. I mean, here I am putting in all this effort. I know I'm going to die one day. I can't take any of that with me. And here comes the sun up every day. Like how, what's fair about that? So that's human viewpoint perspective. Divine perspective says, wow, praise God, there's divine order. Wow, praise God, I can wake up. I know the sun's going to be there in the morning. Wow, praise God, I can plan my, my day around seasons. I can plan my year around seasons that I know are going to be there. I can, I can plan my, my, you know, I know that I'm not going to fall off the side of the earth if I'm standing up at a certain time of the day, right? There's this gravitational pull. So, I mean, there's all these things that we depend on we don't even think about that are constant. And that's a divine viewpoint of all these things. What Solomon's doing is he's painting a human viewpoint. And when you look at it, it doesn't make sense. Why does that happen? Why does that happen to us? And yet these things keep going on and on and on. And so that's kind of the perspective that he's putting forward. And he says this, and there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, There's nothing that you could say, see, this is new. In fact, the implied answer is there's nothing new under the sun. That's, That's the implied answer to the question. Is there anything new? No. Now, one of the things we see is that scientists um, all, the, all the time discover new discoveries, right? They, uh, in fact, I, I just read um, in a periodical, they discovered a new species of monkey. 2019, that you'd think we'd found all the monkeys by now. But apparently there's a new species they've never found before. And what do they say? It's a new discovery. New discovery. That's not new. They just, it's new to them. That monkey's been around for 6,000 years, right? That monkey was created at creation. That's, that's not new um, in, in terms of new. It's, a, it's new to them. And this is Solomon's point. There is nothing new. There's nothing that you could discover. There's nothing that you could investigate. You're not one discovery away from finding the meaning of life. This is what he's trying to paint the picture. There's nothing new out there. Uh, and I'm telling you, you can't see enough, you can't hear enough. And then someone's thinking, oh, but what if, what if we found this? And Solomon's like, it's not there, guys. There's, there's, not a, there's not a skeleton in the closet. There's not a smoking gun. There's not a silver bullet that you're going to find out there that you're gonna, someone's going to drop on your lap and go, ah, okay, now this all makes sense. That's what he's saying. He's, it's not going to happen that way. In fact, creation is predictable. It's very cyclical in some ways, and there's more uniformity and stability in nature than there is in mortals. And so this is one of the things that he's frustrated about. Now, jumping to verse 11, uh, as one quote says, and we'll pull it up here in a second, one of the things we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. That's a a quote. I'm quoting somebody there. And so um, in verse 11, he says this, there is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. And so in relation to the discussion, uh, Solomon simply points out that many people will not and do not take verses 9 through 10 into consideration when determining determining life's meaning. And, and, And the idea that's being communicated there is this. Well, nobody else has been able to find meaning, but I will. See, Solomon says you, you can't do it. You can't take in any more, more information to figure out. You can't see more to figure it out. But you know what? I will. 
And that's, the, you know, and, and not to criticize 18-year-old guys, because I was one of them, and I survived. But that is an 18-year-old guy mindset. Nobody's been ever to hop this fence. Oh, I will. Nobody can go on this road 100, and mile, 100 miles an hour. Oh, I will. Nobody, you know, it's, it's kind of like, hey, you know, hold my drink. You know, that's like the famous last words of a fool. You know, hey, dude, hold my drink. I'm going to try something. And, and, and this is the mindset, 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You've got it all figured out. And what Solomon is going to say is you don't have it figured out. Don't proceed down the same lines that I did, or you're going to be an 80, 85-year-old man, finally realize that what I said in this book was true, and you could have actually spent your life doing something worthwhile and valuable, and yet all you did was chase jobs, money, 401ks, worldly success, and then you hit your bed at 80 years old and you say, Solomon was right. Man, I should have listened to the guy. And so the encouragement in the book is listen to the guy. Don't get on your your bed when you can't get out of bed someday and say, he was right. I misspent my life. I I could have done something that meant something for Jesus Christ. And it was like an old pastor used to tell me, or I used to hear him say all the time, you're going to die doing something. You might as well die serving Jesus Christ. There's nothing else of more value or worth than that. And it can start today, wherever you are in whatever situation you're in with the circle of friends that you have. It can start today. You don't have to wait till you're 35. For the young people, by the way, I I named 35 because they think that's old. Yeah. (laughs) It's like when you're really old out there, 35, you know. Um, You don't have to wait till you're old. You can be 14. You can be 15. You can be 10. You can start impacting the circle that God's got access to. Last time I checked, I haven't been invited to a 10-year-old sleepover. I'm just not that, I'm not that popular anymore. I don't know. I used to go over and, you know, dress up and do makeup and all that kind of, no, just kidding. Um, But I don't get invited to 10-year-old sleepovers anymore. But you know who do? 10-year-old believers get invited to those kind of things, parties. There are things that you have access to, people you have access to in your life that I will never even meet and vice versa for me. And there's an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to actually start filling the world with Jesus Christ. If we could get off of our phones for a couple minutes, if we could get away from the television for a few minutes, If we could get away from the vacation cabin for a few minutes. If we could get off the boat for a couple of minutes. If we could put the fishing pole in a hole for a couple of minutes. If we could stop watching football for an entire Saturday. Sorry, SEC fans. No, I'm just kidding. None of those things are wrong. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying, what's of value? What lasts? What means something? And I'm going to tell you... Being out at the fair the last couple of weeks, that means something. To, to see people across the table who have never heard this message before light up and get it and know that when they stand up from the table, they're 100% sure they're going to heaven. Their sins are forgiven. They're bounce, some of these people are bouncing out of that booth. Just bouncing. I spoke to a lady who was not saved, but very open to the gospel, very confused on what it took to get to heaven. Um, she was about 50 to 80% sure she was going to heaven. Was, I was able to share the gospel. She says, I've never heard it explained that clearly before. That makes sense. I said, could you change your answer to 100%? She said, oh, yeah. And I said, why? Because I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again. That was her answer to me. 
Before she gets up from the table, she says, thanks, I needed that. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, I lost my husband and my kids 12 years ago in a house fire. Three little kids, seven, five, and two. Lost her husband and kids in a house fire. I said, wow, I'm really sorry to hear that. Was that an electrical fire? She said, no, my mother-in-law killed them. She caused an explosion in the house. She was trying to kill all of them. She, this woman that was sitting in front of me, actually got called into work that day. And it saved her life. But, you know, you hear stories like that. And, you know, you're at the table. You're investing in these kind of ministries, recognizing they have eternal value. And God puts a divine appointment on my schedule. Me. I mean, who am I to share this message Nobody, by the way. Who are you to share the message? You're just like me. You're, you're nobody. You're, you're saved by the same grace that I'm saved by. You know the same message that I do, and God wants to use you. God can use you. This is where meaning and purpose in life is. Don't get distracted by what the world tells you. It's not a house, a white picket fence, two and a half kids, a dog, a cat. It's not that. That's the American dream. That's not meaning. In fact, people all over this country have the American dream and they're miserable. They can't even get out of bed in the morning. They don't even like their job. They hate their spouse. They kick their dog when no one's looking. They got problems. That's not where meaning or life is at. You can have a pot a one-room house, and if you are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, you can be singing amazing grace and actually having great impact on the people in your life. It's a paradigm shift. Man, do we need it. Man, are we distracted. I can't even possibly name all the things that we're distracted by. I can only think of a couple, but there's millions of things that distract us. And we want to be doing things that have meaning and value and see this is the problem nobody remembers these things nobody trusts what Solomon's saying they say I got to figure this out for myself and then we realize it later oh yeah he's been right the whole time another life wasted for Jesus Christ saved going to heaven because you're saved by grace it's not something that you earn or deserve it's all about what Jesus did and accomplished for you but a totally wasted life for Jesus Christ, because we have been caught up in everything else that doesn't matter. And you know, Satan isn't always trying to lead you into some grave, licentious sin. And, 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 and so don't feel you know, too good about ourselves if we're not murdering people or committing adultery or getting drunk and waking up in a gutter. Don't feel too good about yourself. Satan's ultimate goal is to distract you from Jesus Christ. And he'll use anything to do that, even neutral things, things that aren't evil, to distract you. We need a paradigm shift. We need to set our mind on things above. We need to stop setting our mind on things on the earth. We need to know what that means and how that works out in our own thinking and just challenge you to begin thinking this way. You know, Solomon even says that people in the future will do the same when looking back on their past. They won't even remember. They won't even remember the, the, the history from yesteryear. This quote says, We learn from history that we learn nothing from history. And again, this is not something new. It's not only true of this generation. Um, But here's the deal. Like I said before, God's a gentleman. He's going to give you a choice. If you want to be miserable, 
you can, he'll let you be miserable. That's a choice. You, you have the choice to be occupied with things on the earth. And if you are, you'll be miserable. That's just the way it is. You're out of fellowship with the Lord. It's miserable. Total misery. That's the deal. And so you can have it um, if that's what you want. And you know, what's really crazy about that? I was just, just thinking about this last night. We will listen to so many other people in our life, but when Solomon is trying to tell us the meaning of life, we just blow them off. And this is kind of his point. We don't learn anything from history. We don't pay attention to somebody that's gone on before us. But you know what? We will pay attention. Ever, those of you that have been in college, gone to college, have you ever gone to sign up for a class and asked one of your friends, hey, is this teacher good or is this teacher good? I have the option. They say, oh, don't take, you know, Professor Smith, man, he has a lot of homework. He's, man, he's, you can't even understand him. Take Professor, you know, Clark or whatever, somebody else, right? Um, so take, take him. And what do you do? Do you even question that? Do you go have to research it on your own and, you know, do a, a semester with Mr. Smith to just verify how bad they say he is? No, you just, you don't even consider taking that guy. You take the, the other professor that they said was easy and didn't give any homework, right? We do the same in, in jobs, right? Everyone says, oh, you don't want to work for that guy. Don't, don't take that promotion because you're going to end up reporting to that guy. Just kind of work down this side because this is the boss you want. And we just take people at face value. We believe what they say. and We make decisions that reflect the fact that we believe what he says. You know, especially growing up in a sports family, that was a big deal. Oh, you don't want to play for that coach. Man, he just runs people on the ground. You want to go to this coach. And, I, and my dad actually at one point moved us out of a certain district so I could play for a different coach. Just based on the word of somebody, he just upped and moved our family. Like, packed up the house and moved across town to get to it so I could play for another coach. And we do these things on a whim. And yet Solomon is saying, guys, I got the key to life. I got the key to happiness, purpose, and meaning. It's right here. And not only that, I explored this in great detail. So it wasn't like I just came up with this on my own. I actually investigated this. I used my life almost as a test. Why won't we believe them? Why won't we take them at face value? We still got to prove it out uh, ourselves in so many ways. And so the encouragement is there. Learn from history. Let's learn from history. People will continue to put these things together. They'll think they have the newest and brightest way to explain the meaning of life. But Solomon has already reviewed it, and there's no greater answer than what he'll give. And that's this, simply, life without God, life without divine viewpoint has no meaning. And so he's going to illustrate that for us now. He's going to go into what uh, one commentator says, seven dead-end streets and Let's pull this up. This is going to take us through chapter 2, almost all the way through chapter 2. First, we're going to look at the philosopher. Philosophy doesn't provide meaning to life. He's going to look at the student, you know, someone trying to learn more. Doesn't give us the meaning to life. Then he's he's going to check out, hey, let's party. Hey, let's get into the party scene. Maybe that'll give us meaning to life. So he's going to become a party animal. And Solomon, you know his background. Uh, it's exactly what he did, historically. Uh, the alcoholic, the workaholic. Oh, maybe it's, maybe it's my meaning and purpose is in work. The aristocrat, the, the Puritan. Now he's going to really clean it up morally because it's been really not working out immorally. You know, I wonder how many wives and concubines in Solomon figured out like, ooh, this isn't a good idea. I, don't, I mean, I don't know. 
He didn't learn it after a thousand. Maybe that's why he didn't have a thousand and one. Maybe he finally got it. And then the philanthropist, well, what if I just give to other people, you know? And that's what many people do. You see rich Hollywood celebrities trying to assuage their conscience for the things that they're doing, trying to find meaning in life. And now it becomes about the starving children in Africa or the the starving, you know, whatever, uh, you know, in in India and and just all over the country where there's these heartstrings and they have this money they can give and they want to feel better and they, they want to find purpose there. And I would venture to say, if you can get them an honest moment, they said, you know what? I've given $2 million to this charity in the last year and I still don't have meaning or purpose. And that's what Solomon is going to find. Now, one of the things as we get into this is, is these tests and investigations, um, when Solomon does it, he seems to be gearing them. Remember, he's got an audience. He's got an original audience that he's writing this for. It's the nation of Israel, primarily, I believe. And he's trying to undercut this naive importance placed on all of these things by members of his society. In fact, where would this society, where would Israel have seen all of these things and probably thought it was a good idea? From Solomon's life. I mean, that's where they would have seen it. They've, they've seen their, their king, the most successful guy they knew in the world at the time. They've seen him doing all these things. They're like, that's where life's at. Man, look at Solomon. And tell me you haven't done that at some point in your life. See a guy drive up in like a Lamborghini, Mercedes Benz, and you're like, man, what do you do? Oh, I'm such and such, you know, I'm a stockbroker, I'm whatever. And and as a kid, I remember thinking, that's what I'm going to do for a living. (laughs) Because I want to drive that car one day. And I want to have that kind of, you know, beautiful woman sitting next to me. So I don't have the car, but I got the beautiful woman. So one out of two. Um, But anyways, you start to think, you know, you start to think carnally, you start to think worldly. And so um, he's trying to, I think at this point in his life, point out, this is naive. This won't get you where you want to go. And it's kind of like the parent that says, do as I say, don't do as I do. (laughs) Solomon's at that point. Don't do what I do. Quit. Forget what you've seen. Let me tell you where it's really at. And so he's writing to these. So he's going to kind of go down these dead end streets. And before we get to Verse 13, which is where we're going to close. He says, he, he says this again in verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And this kind of seems like a meaningless statement. Like, why does he bring this up? We already, he already told us this in verse 1. Why is he bringing this up again? Um, well, one of the reasons, it, it gives us to added reason to believe that Solomon is indeed um, the author of this book. Um, because he's, he's king over all Israel. That could only be said of Saul David and Solomon, because what happens in the next generation? They divide the kingdom, okay? So it can only be said of of Solomon, and and obviously we believe that. But here's the reason I believe he brings this up again. He is in the most preeminent, prime position of anyone to experiment and research all of these questions about life. Why? He's the wisest man that ever lived. He was probably the richest man that ever lived. He was more respected probably than any man that ever lived as, as shown by the, the dignitaries that would come in just to sit under his wisdom. Can you, ima- I mean, can you imagine anybody from, uh, I mean, regardless of how you feel about President Trump, but can you imagine anybody from another country wanting to come in and just, oh, President Trump, you know, spill your wisdom on me. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And that wouldn't happen with any world leader. That's, but this is what was going on in Solomon's life. So if anyone was qualified to research this topic, it was this man because he had access to everything. 
He had access to anything he wanted so he could explore every single opportunity that he wanted. And so we move to verse 13. And what we see from verse 13 is he pursued this um, unabashedly, unabandoned with his heart. We'll kind of see how verse 13 reads. It says this, and I, I set my heart to seek and search out my wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. And he, and he starts off with this phrase, I set my heart. Interesting phrase. It's repeated often in the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll define it each time, but it, but it means to place an object in possession or control of another. He, he's, you might say he's giving his, his, himself over completely to what we're about to read. He gives himself over completely. And there's two things that he gives himself over to. You're going to see it. To seek and to search out. And, you know, sometimes you look at those words, especially in the English, you think, well, those, those kind of look like synonyms. There's actually, there's actually a different subtle distinction between those words. One represents penetrating in depth, okay, like digging down to the root of something. The other speaks of going out in extent. So it wasn't like Solomon just drilled in one spot, one big long hole, and then made his conclusions. The implication is he drilled a long hole. And then he moved forward and he drilled another long hole and he was all over the place digging deep to find the answer and meaning to life. And so that first word to seek means, again, as I mentioned, to seek with care to the roots of of a matter. He inquired about, he investigated, he learned information not previously known. There's an, this is uh, an intense way or an emphatic way of checking into something. It was often used of inquiring of the Lord. You, you would have the same word used. So he's digging deep, trying to get to the root of a matter. You could say that Solomon put forth a, a strong, devoted, and intentional effort, okay? He wasn't just bumping through life and then, oh, oh, okay, I just noticed something and pull out his notebook. No, he was literally, his notebook was open, his pen was out. He was looking to, to make conclusions. He was digging deeply into things. And then we see this word to search out. It means to, to follow, to spy out, to seek out, to try to find out information by traveling on foot and investigating a subject on all sides. So he just didn't consider uh, something from one angle. He was looking at it from lots of different angles to try to gain meaning. And so he's telling us all this because now when he goes into the experiments and gives us the conclusion, you and I can't say, oh, yeah, but he really didn't check it out that, that well. Oh, yeah, I mean, he said he pursued this, but he really didn't have enough money to do that. So I have more money. I think I can get to happiness that way. Or, yeah, he only built a couple buildings. I think if I build five buildings, then I'm going to be happy. No, what he's trying to say is, guys, I have done it all from every angle at any depth you want to look at, and I have the conclusion for you. That's what he's saying. He's, he's, he's kind of setting that up. So not only did he make a concerted effort to get to the root of everything, but he left no stone unturned. He went into full investigation mode. And it'd be like if I picked up a rock, I picked up a rock and I picked it up and I had to kind of dig it out from the ground to pick it up. And then not only did I do that, but then I looked at it from all sides and I spent all day just examining it from different angles. That's the imagery that we have here in terms of the investigation that Solomon undertook. Now, one of the things that he also provides us in verse 13, it's a little clarifying caveat. And he says this, 
He wanted to do both of these things via wisdom. And we talk about wisdom a lot here. We define it a lot, but let's define it again. Wisdom is taking knowledge and learning how to skillfully apply it to your life. Okay. We've talked about that before. You know, um, it's not, it's, this is not a Bible trivia equipping session on Sunday mornings, right? We're not preparing you for a Bible trivia quiz. Oh, how many trials did Jesus have? How many trials did he have? How many were religious? How many were political? I mean, that's great. I like to know those things, but ultimately who cares? What does that, what does that do for me when I hit a trial, a, a, a trial or temptation on Monday afternoon? I'm not going to be going, oh, six trials. Ah, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm not quoting that. I'm not saying, oh, Methuselah is 936. Oh, thank you, Lord. My, my flat tire is going to now, I'm not stressed about that anymore. Okay. My refrigerator, my refrigerator went out. Uh, David had three wives. Okay. Wow. Great. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about taking knowledge and how do you skillfully apply it in that situation when your refrigerator goes out, when you have a flat tire on the side of the road, that's where it's at. Not, can you quote me a Bible reference and verse, or you can quote me a hundred of them. Can you apply them? Can you take them and skillfully match it up to the situation that you're in? That's wisdom. This is how Solomon undertook his investigation of the things that were listening. So he's trying to paint a picture. He, he's kind of subtly saying, here's my qualifications. Here's my resume. Listen to me. I, I have this. I, I, I can explain these things to you. I've done it. And now I want to give you my conclusions. But, but, but first, we're going to see what he investigates. Now, wisdom, as one writer says, gives unity and clarity to the details of life. It puts puzzle pieces together. And so what specifically is Solomon devoting his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom to understand life on this earth under the sun? You'll see that phrase. He wants to understand that. Where's meaning? Where's value? Where's purpose? By the way, if, if I could tell you what Jesus Christ would be doing if he was living right now on earth, how many of you would just say, I'm there? I don't care if he wants to open a donut shop. I'm there. I'm working in the donut shop, and I'll fight you to get to the front of the line, right? I'm, I'm there. I don't care what he's... I think many of us would feel that way. If we could tell you, well, guess what? Matthew 16 tells us he is building his church. And he's doing that with every part and every joint and everything that you and I supply as spiritually gifted believers to do that very thing. So there you go. Who's in the front of the line with me, right? I mean, this is what we need to be about. This is where meaning and purpose in life comes in. It centers around the ministry of Jesus Christ through the local church. Now, if you want to go pursue you know, your 401k, you want to make lots of money, you want to pursue, you know, all the nice trucks in the world and boats and all that, you have the freedom to do that. That's fine. That's fine. What Solomon's going to tell you is you won't be happy that there's not a, a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And see, that's what the world will teach you. Oh yeah, there's a pot of gold. It's right over there, Lucky Charms, you know, it's, it's in the same spot, you know, the little leprechaun, it's right next to him. If you can find him. And so we know that that doesn't exists. Now, one of the things that Solomon says, I, this is, I've said this a couple times. I love Ecclesiastes because it's no, it's, he just gives it to you straight, right? He's not, there's no Christianese here. He's not trying to sound 
good in front of spiritual people or religious people. He doesn't care. He's just cutting it straight. And I love this. And this is what he says about this whole search. It's not fun. Modern parlance, it stinks. This, <laughs> this was not a fun thing to do. I, I, don't, I don't even like it. It stinks. And, and he says this in this way, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man. In fact, this word burdensome comes from the same Hebrew word that we translate evil. I don't think it's, I don't think it's used that way here. It's not that God is giving us an evil task, but it just shows you that the anguish that Solomon feels with having had this task. It's burdensome. It's not fun. And he says, God has given this to man, meaning to, to place it in our possession. It's this task of understanding all that is done in heaven. This burdensome task can be described this way. Uh, one commentator says it's difficult business or it's something with undesirable features. Solomon candidly says, guys, this ain't fun. Trying to figure this out is not fun. And because God is said to have given this to the sons of man, it appears that God has put this urge in each one of us to find the deeper meaning and value and purpose in our life. You know, remember a book years ago, and I'm not going to say that I'm in full agreement with everything in there. In fact, there's a lot I, I don't like about it. But you remember the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and just how that exploded in our culture? And what was one of the reasons? Because it was a book that promised could, to give you purpose. And people said, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. I'm tired of waking up with the covers pulled over my head, hitting the snooze alarm 10 times, not wanting to face another day. I'm tired of waking up, not knowing if my life means anything, is worth anything, if anyone cares about me, if anyone would miss me if I was gone. I'm tired of those things. I'm tired of the rejection I face. I want purpose. And so that book just shot up on the bestseller list because people want purpose. And you know, part of the reason I believe we see that is because God has put that into the lives of, of all of us to desire to find that. Now, one of the cool things about that is that Solomon describes the reason why God has done this. Look at the phrase in verse 13, by which he's given this burdensome task to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. And this exercised means to be preoccupied with, to be concerned about, to be busy thinking about. You see why God did it? In his gracious way, he's, he's putting this burdensome task in each one of our thinking. If you've ever thought about what happens to somebody after you die, if you've ever thought about what, where should I focus my attention, my time, my talents, my money, what's worthwhile in this life, what's worthwhile for my time, if you've ever had that thought, the reason you had it is because God's placed it there. And the reason he's placed it there is because he wants you to think about it and he wants you to come up with the right answer, which is him. That's the right answer. Not things or stuff or whatever else we might come up with in this world. And so next week, we're going to work our way down these dead end streets with Solomon. We're going we're gonna to investigate them ourselves through his eyes and see what he has to say about each one of these things because we want to be completely disillusioned with him 
about everything this world can offer because the second we are, then we realize the only place we can find true comfort, value, purpose, and happiness is in fellowship with the Lord. And we need to get there first by being disillusioned with everything else because if not, we're going to be convinced, well, yeah, Solomon found that out, but I think I can make it work. I think I can give a go at that and I think I can make that work. And, and, you know, it's not to say that sin doesn't have some fun to it. I mean, give me a break. That's why people, that's why we do it. There's some fun associated with it, but there are damaging consequences that come with it. Stuff that we would never choose for ourselves. We may have fun in the moment, but then we realize after the fact, oh man, God was right. That wrecked, that wrecked things. That ruined things. That produced a death-like existence. And so we'll continue the study next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And it, it is my heart's desire, Lord, for everybody in this room, Though if there's any here that have never put their faith in your son, realize that what he did by dying for our sins was enough in your sight, that they would be convinced this morning to put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Lord, we know you call him a savior for a reason. We know that saviors save. And if you sent a savior, we realize that the Bible teaches we need a savior. Otherwise, you wouldn't have sent a savior. And so, Lord, we pray for those this morning that may not know that that they would be convinced this morning to put their faith in Christ. For those who have already put their faith in Christ, we pray they would be convinced and persuaded this morning, even even as we are just getting into the argument of the book of Ecclesiastes, that we would all be convinced, Lord, that there's nothing better in this life than to be in fellowship with you, regardless of what is promised in the world, that we would be convinced of that at whatever age we're at, and we would start living with renewed purpose, and focus as we learn what it means to actually lean on you, not on our understanding, trust you, walk by faith, do the things that would bring us the most joy, purpose, and peace in our life. And Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.